Yeah. It should be. Yeah. yeah. But, I mean, Florida um, doesn't have a, an early church scholar. Um, they don't really have a church Okay, people. Okay, okay, okay. Uh, if we uh, if we get time later on, then we can share some things out of that. But I won't do that now in case we run out of other things. Uh, first, I'm going to pass around these VCA forms that you need to uh, fill in. If um, yeah, um, yes. So let that, let that one go around that one, that one go around that one. Um, and then those two handsome guys who are standing in the corner, um, oh, they're just, Jim's just stood up so you realise he's a handsome guy, um, are the, uh, the TAs who are not only handsome but intelligent. Or whether or not they are handsome, they are intelligent. And they are now going to, sentence, going to, they are now going to say a sentence or three about themselves and about what being a TA they're going to do and about how to do the, get the best out of this course, because the reason why they're the TAs is because they've done the course and done it well. So they know it from your point of view, and they know, you know, the quirks and the... Anyway, say something, guys. Uh, my name is Chris Thomas. Um, I am an MIT student and a PhD clinical psych student. Um, and uh, some of you back there. Um, I did a class last summer uh, and really enjoyed it. And... Um, I think uh, mostly what I did is try to put aside everything that I thought I really knew <laughs> uh, and uh, just experience everything you've um, been thinking about, uh, the Old Testament and Pentateuch, and, um, and kind of have my presumptions there, know them, but be really open to what um, both Dr. Golden Gate would bring as well as what everybody else from their varied perspectives would bring to the discussion groups. And so um, I, think if, I think if you hold too tightly on what you, what you know or what you think you know or what you've always heard, um, it, it becomes really difficult to, to get the richness of the course um, and the material uh, out of it. But if you can hold that lightly and think, gosh, there's lots of ways to experience it and, and many different things to get out of it, then it's going to be a really uh, great opportunity to learn. And I, I, I mean, it's kind of, for me, falling in love with the Old Testament again uh, and just enjoying that uh, experience of going back to it and what, what God was doing for the beginning. So. That's great. Thanks. Jim? Yeah. I'm Jim Chapman. I just graduated with MIT uh, about two Saturdays ago. Yeah, thanks. Um, <laughs> getting ready to uh, head to the THM program at Duke in the fall, and um, this, uh, I, see, I took four classes with Dr. Goldgay um, uh, through my seminary experience, and the Pentateuch class, the thing I, I, I love about the most is the thing I think Dr. Goldgate really brings to the text, uh, and just how much the Old Testament can affirm the variety of the human experience, and um, I think that's something I, uh, I've always loved about reading the Pentateuch since I, I took this class a summer ago as well, and uh, really looking forward to seeing you all journey through that as well. Thanks, guys. Uh, and what will happen is that normally after a class, um, they will uh, they were sharing the looking at your um, 
postings of your own homework and also uh, your comments at other people's uh, on, a, on, on your group's homework. Um, and they will send you an email via the Moodle system that, com that gives you a comment or two on that. Don't expect lots of comment because they only get paid about, about one and a half cents, you know, an evening or something like that. Uh, and uh, so they do it more out of love than because the, they're, they're going to make any um, money out of it. Uh, and uh, that, so they will, um, but they will give you some comments as far as they've got time. Um, and they will give you a letter grade, but you don't have to worry about the letter grade because the way that the grading for the course works, you only, it's only pass-fail with regard to the homeworks and the postings. So as long as you get a C- minus or whatever it is, then you're okay. Um, the, the letters are simply for your uh, interest so that you know kind of how, how you're performing. Uh, if ever they, they think that any of the homeworks fail, then they'll refer them to me. Uh, so uh, I make all the decisions about failing, so it's me you can blame if any of that ever happens. Um, we were having trouble at the beginning tonight uh, being able to go on to Moodle, post things on Moodle. I think, I, I think and hope it's because you won't be able to post until we've sorted out the groups. Um, and so I'm trusting that that'll all be all right when it comes to your posting on Wednesday morning. Uh, if, if then you find you can't post, um, then uh, if anybody whose, name, whose surname is A to K would email their homework to Jim, uh, the, their, their email addresses are in the syllabus. Uh, and anybody whose surname is L to Z, um, email your homework um, to Chris. Um, okay? Wait, Jim for A to K. A to K for Jim. Chris, is Chris for L to Z. Doesn't that cover oh, all the letters? No, L to Z, sorry. I was concentrating so hard on saying Z rather than saying Z um, <laughs> that I, um, yeah, it's a very hard life. Anything else that you need to know about the logistics that, um, in order to keep you going till Wednesday? Okay, um, now let's go on to having done what the Pentateuch is not. The next page, page 22, says, well, what is the Pentateuch then? What is the Torah? Um, and here's my six-point uh, summary of that. I've only just noticed there were six things that isn't, and here's the six things that is. That's cool, isn't it? That's a total coincidence. It's enough for two Presbyterian sermons. I mean, well, four Presbyterian sermons, isn't it, out of the whole thing, right? Here is the plot of this story. This, this gospel story has got the four, the four stages in it. It tells you um, four, there are four episodes to this story. Uh, and they don't correspond very much, the div to, you'll see if you look down, to the divisions between the books. The divisions between the books, as far as one can tell, are secondary divisions within the Pentateuch. The books don't really make sense on their own. Uh, or at least they only make the kind of sense um, that something like Lost makes when you get to the end of a... when you get to May. And you've kind of got to an end, but you haven't, because they want you to come back and watch again in the, after, the, uh, after the summer. And the Pentateuch's a bit like that. When you get to the end of Genesis... Oh, you haven't got... No, well, we've got to turn over the page to Exodus. Um, and, uh, and when you get to the, to the end of Exodus, it isn't really an end because they have been told how to build a tabernacle and how to appoint some priests, and they built a tabernacle, but they haven't appointed any priests yet. Um, and when you get to the end of, it, of Leviticus, you haven't come to an end. 
because they're at Sinai, and they're still at Sinai, and they don't leave Sinai until through Numbers. Um, so the, don't, don't take too much notice of the divisions between the books. They're not nonsense, but they are a bit like the ends of, um, uh, of a series on the TV uh, each May, June time. What is the Pentateuch? What's the Torah? What's the story then? Well, first, in Genesis 1 to 11, it's about how God created the world and how God related to it. Five chapters about how God related, related to the world and how it went wrong, how God created the world um, and how uh, it went wrong and how God carried on relating to it. Um, and then the account of how God uh, virtually destroyed the world but then started it going again. Uh, and set, um, established the first covenant. Uh, so a significant theme in the Pentateuch is the theme of covenant, um, but there are various forms of covenant. And the first covenant uh, with Noah is one that is thus a covenant with the whole world that's to descend, descend from Noah. And when you get to the end of Genesis 1 to 11, the question, as it were, when you get to May in this year uh, of the TV, of, this, of the series, you don't know whether blessing or curse is going to win out in the world. Because God has been concerned to bless, but curse has kept alternating with blessing through this story. Uh, and when you get to the end of Genesis 11, you don't know which is going to win. Genesis 12 to 50 is about how God made promises to Israel's ancestors. And it's when you turn over the page into Genesis 12, and you read about God promising uh, to bless Abraham, that, as, that that, as it were, reassures you um, that God is, God's purpose is that, that blessing should win out. The stories, the, the um, narrative as a whole in Genesis 12 to 50, um, is about Abraham and Sarah and their family, and then about Isaac and Rebekah and their family, and then about Jacob and Rachel and their family, which kind of becomes the story of Joseph and his brothers, but is still in a way, the story of Jacob um, and Rachel and their family. That's the way that the, the Genesis thinks of it. Uh, even when you're reading all those stories about Joseph and his brothers, it's really the Jacob story. Um, so, the story of Israel's ancestors is about Abraham and Sarah, Isaac and Rebekah, Jacob and Rachel, Joseph, with Joseph and his brothers. In declaring the intention to bless Abraham, and through Abraham to bless the world... All the nations are going to be blessed um, through you, says God to Abraham. God sets up the second uh, covenant. And like the first covenant, it's totally a covenant of, pro of promise on God's part. Well, virtually totally a covenant of promise on God's part. In the Noah covenant, God simply says, I'm going to give a, attach a significance to that rainbow in the sky. Whenever you see the rainbow, uh, you'll see that I've taken the arrow out of my bow. I'm never going to shoot it again. I'm never going to destroy the world again. You don't have to do anything to make that happen. Just rejoice in the security that you have in the world. It's almost the same with the um, Abraham covenant. I'm going to give you these promises. There is a slightly painful operation that the guys have to go through. But that's all. Uh, you, don't, you don't make a vast contribution to this covenant. I do expect you to walk, through, walk before me faithfully and so on, but there's no detailed expectations I have of you. That's um, part of the point about Paul's argument in Romans in order to show how his understanding of justification by faith fits with the way that the relationship with Abraham worked. <coughs> Here is God making promises um, to uh, Abraham and Sarah. 
that they start being that start being fulfilled against all the odds in the story of Isaac uh, and then of Isaac and Rebekah and carries on being uh, fulfilled in the story of Jacob and Rachel and Joseph and his brothers. The promise is a promise of blessing and growing to a great people um, and enjoying a land. When you get to the end of Genesis, the promise about becoming a great people um, is on the way towards fulfillment. But there are big people in the wrong land. Um, and uh, so only in part has God's promise start, started being fulfilled. In some other ways, God's promise seems to have gone backwards. If your life ever seems like that, if God's promises seem to go backwards rather than forwards, well, uh, be encouraged by the way in which that's true about how these promises started off in Genesis. How God made promises to Israel's ancestors. Series 3, Exodus 1 to 18. How God delivered Israel from Egypt. Um, Twelve chapters describing how uh, the escape from Egypt happened. Uh, totally unnecessary to have all those plagues and all those chapters. Um, and uh, what that demonstrates is there's something else going on uh, than merely bringing the Israelites out of Egypt. There is, there is God showing who is God. There is Yahweh, the God of Israel, um, demonstrating, showing uh, that he is God. Pharaoh, as is the habit of the leader of a superpower, thinks he is God. Um, and a, a, a reason, the reason as far as I know, uh, why we have this sto the story of this, this ongoing conflict between God and Pharaoh is that the story is designed to show how God is God and the leader of the superpower is not. Twelve chapters about the escape from Egypt and half a dozen chapters about the journey to Sinai um, in the midst of which the, the last great victory of God over the Pharaoh is won at the Red Sea. Uh, but then in the uh, succeeding part, now don't put, no, you needn't pass that one across there. Uh, has that one been around everywhere here? I need to go that way then. Um, where's your, is that one wandering around still there? Okay. The people at the back tend to be the people who don't get these things. So um, keep your eye open when there's a roster going around. Make sure that um, it gets your way. After the Red Sea, uh, well, in, in, in a sense, before the Red Sea incident and also afterwards, um, the beginnings of that uh, dynamic that Paul describes in 1 Corinthians 10 uh, are at work. That is, uh, only five minutes after the Israelites are out of Egypt, are they really wishing that they'd like to be back, wishing they were back there again? Oh, it was great food we had in Egypt, they say. Now, this is not the impression that you've got from when you've read the story of the Israelites in Egypt, but it's funny what memory, the tricks that memory plays on you. God delivered, how God delivered Israel from Egypt and took them to Sinai. Uh, then, in a very long series four, uh, Exodus 19 through Leviticus on into Numbers chapter 10, is the account of how God met with Israel at Sinai. First, with what I've here called a sealing of the covenant. Um, in a way, it's a kind of renegotiation and resealing of the covenant, what happens at Sinai. We think of God making a, a covenant with the people then, um, though Exodus is really quite sparse in its use of that sort of language, not surprisingly, because the people are already in a covenant relationship with God. 
That's a major reason why he brings them out of Egypt, because is because they are his covenant people, and he's mindful of his covenant. It says in Exodus chapter 2. But what does happen now is a kind of renegotiating of the terms of the covenant, because now it's no longer simply a covenant of promise in which God says what he's going to do. It's a covenant made on the basis of what God has done. I am the God who brought you out of the land of Egypt. These are the things I expect uh, in response for you. The covenant is sealed at Sinai. God gives them some instructions about how to build a sanctuary in chapters 25 to 31. Um, Unfortunately, while God is giving Moses the instructions for how to build a sanctuary on the top of uh, Mount Sinai, at the bottom of Mount Sinai, uh, the Israelites are busy doing exactly the, kind, the opposite of the kind of thing that God says they uh, ought to be doing, like, build, like making a golden calf. Um, and this is the point at which God starts getting angry. Uh, and uh, it's a context then in which uh, the covenant has been imperiled by what the Israelites did. When the Old Testament talks about breaking a covenant, it doesn't mean you've annulled it. Just as when I break the speed limit, it doesn't change the speed, it doesn't change the speed limit. It simply means I get fined. Well, sometimes, anyway. The, the breaking of, a, of the covenant doesn't annul the covenant, but it does kind of imperil it. Uh, and it's thus significant that in Exodus 32 to 34, after the covenant breaking, there is a covenant renewing on God's part as God shows himself both somebody who gets angry um, with the way the Israelites behave, but also somebody who continues to be committed uh, in mercy to them. And one of the signs of that ongoing commitment uh, is the fact that the other side of that act of rebellion, the sanctuary is built. So um, the instructions and the building of the wilderness sanctuary, the, t- the, the wilderness tabernacle, come either side of the act of rebellion. But the sanctuary gets built. Um, and God comes and dwells there. And Exodus comes to a great climax at the very end of chapter 40 with, with God's glory resting on the sanctuary. When you turn over into Leviticus, uh, you find material that kind of follows logically in one sense, but it doesn't follow, the, uh, it disturbs the narrative line. And that's why I've, set, uh, I've inset uh, those chapter references to Leviticus 1 to 7 and the other chapters further down. Because they are blocks of teaching material, a bit like the Sermon on the Mount, that that doesn't take the story forward, but gives you some significant teaching. Having having had the sanctuary built, Leviticus 1-7 to gives you teaching about how to offer sacrifices in the sanctuary. Um, And the narrative line then um, resumes in chapter 8 with the ordination of the priests. Because, as I said earlier... The instructions in chapter 35 to in chapters 25 to 31 were instructions both for the building of the sanctuary and for the ordination of the priests. They've only done one by the time you get to the end of Exodus. So now comes the other: the ordination of the priests in Leviticus um, 8 uh, to 10, um, followed by some more sets of instructions uh, in Leviticus 8, 11 to 18 and 19 to 27 which uh, relate, at least in part, to the ministry of the priests. Um, And that, again, is why it's logical to put them here. Uh, Having had the priests ordained, well, here is material they need to know about in order to be able to to fulfil their ministry in relation to the people. So, again, if you want simply to stick with the narrative line, you you go straight from the end of Exodus. You only take notice of Leviticus 8 to 10, um, and only then with the beginning of Numbers, 
um, do you start getting the narrative line continued as God um, gives the Israelites instructions about uh, how the journey towards the promised land is to work out um, and they make preparations for it. Uh, Numbers 10 then represents the end of series 4 of this um, Torah uh, great work uh, with the Israelites being um, now leaving in order to take what was designed to be a fairly short journey um, from Sinai to the promised land. 10 days walk or something but turned out to take 40 years. Well, sometimes you miscalculate the length of a journey, don't you? (laughs) Numbers 10 to 36, then, series 5. How God led Israel to the edge of the land. Um, The grievous nature of chapters 10 to 21 is that they are an account um, of a journey that, uh, that was taking people towards the land, but it was a journey characterized by those acts of rebellion, that complaining... Um, that Paul talked about in 1 Corinthians 10. Um, and uh, that's part of that aspect of the journey came to a climax in Numbers 13 and 14 when, they send, when Moses sends the spies into the land uh, and they come back saying, yeah, the grapes look terrific, but you should see the size of those guys. Um, and the Israelites get into a panic and don't want to go at all and are all set to go back to Egypt again. Um, and God says, that's it. I've had it with you lot. And the Israelites say, okay, then we'll go into the land. And Moses and God say, no, don't go and do that now. It's, it's, it's like a, it's, it's, it's like a uh, uh, dysfunctional marriage relationship, really. This relationship between God and Israel in a lot of ways. Um, uh, God says, that's it. I've seen enough of you lot. I'm still committed to this people. But I'm going to let you lot simply, you lot aren't going to go into the land. I'm going to let this generation die out so that we get this clean start with a new generation into the land. So those few chapters from Numbers 10 to 21 um, occupy more or less 40 years. The previous um, whole series uh, only lasted a very short time, a couple of years. See, there's no relationship between the amount of time that's given, the amount of narrative time, the amount of space that's given, uh, to various elements in the story and the number of years chronologically that it occupies. Two-thirds of the way through the book of Numbers the people arrive uh, on the edge of the promised land in Moab um, and there um, are some things that happen there and there's some bits of teaching that happen there. Uh, Deuteronomy then uh, again takes, doesn't take the story any further forward because Deuteronomy is Moses' last message to Israel in the plains of Moab, uh, in which the covenant is once more reaffirmed, um, uh, renewed, with the generation that are the generation who will actually go into the land. The whole of Deuteronomy is this gargantuan sermon. Never mind about Presbyterians and three points. This is a proper Baptist sermon. Uh, anybody else claim long sermons? Any other? Um, it's still, in a sense, part of the narrative line because the, the, the very last event in the Pentateuch is this surprising, uh, sad, in a way, uh, account of how Moses dies still um, inside of the Promised Land, able to see it, to cast his eye over all of it, um, but not himself able to enter it. Uh, so that the Deuteronomy, the theme of Deuteronomy then is, if you like, how God th- spoke through Moses for the last time. 
There's the story. There are the six series. There are the six series. How God created the world and related to it. How God made promises to our ancestors. How God delivered Israel from Egypt. How God met with Israel at Sinai. How God led Israel to the edge of the land. How God spoke through Moses for the last time. And it's 7.50. And we shall have 20 minutes break. And in the breaks, if you can resist the temptation to talk to me, I'll be grateful because I have to talk a lot. So I have to try and rest my voice a bit in these 20 minutes. But you're always welcome to talk to me at the end because it doesn't matter if I run out of voice at, um, well, 20 past 9 tonight, but 10 to 9 in future weeks. Okay? Go away for 20 minutes, then come back. <laughs>